0: Hello, this is Alan, and you're listening to Matinees on Main Street, the podcast about movie history from the beginning. We're currently on a chronological trip as we visit the men who started the industry. In time, we'll also visit the people who made the films, those who exhibited them, and those who watched them. We have now arrived at the opening of the first important projected showing of moving pictures. I think that I've mentioned a few times about other private attempts at projecting moving images, and and there were a number of them. In fact, there are enough of them to drive anyone who's fascinated with things like which projector came first to go a little bonkers. I have to admit that I'm not one of those. One reason is that in many cases, no matter where your interests lie, the firsts usually aren't that important to the growth of what you're studying. In our case, Auguste Le Prince was the first to accomplish the development of moving pictures, and yet his name is treated like a footnote, while the real development went on around him. Right now, we're starting to discuss the massive wave of projectors about to hit the market. Edison had developed a kinetoscope, but like Le Prince, once his mechanical viewing machine was on the market, the wave of invention just went around him. As others understood, that projected images impressed the public much more than did small flickering images inside of a wooden console. These first projectors all seemed to appear at the same time. Even the press was surprised by the sudden appearance of all these machines, and the only reason they could find for this wave of moving picture machinery to suddenly appear was that everyone was reacting to Edison's kinetoscope. For every movie machine inventor, their first exhibitions were always test runs in the lab. Only a fool would hold a public exhibition for a newly designed projector without testing it first. In fact, most of these inventors started testing their performance of their projectors by running paper strips through them instead of film in order to make sure it ran properly. In other words, why waste your precious film on performance failures? Repeated tests of this process guaranteed that the machine worked. Once they established that the mechanics worked, then they used film in order to fine-tune the advancement mechanism. So, in a way, what many of these inventors were attempting with their first public exhibitions was to gauge both how the public responded to the machine's performance and what the public thought of the film clips themselves. Not every moving picture machine inventor had designed a moving picture camera so most of the early showings would be performed using Edison Kinetoscope films that the inventor had somehow obtained. This betrayed a naive belief that they could get Edison to agree to sell them some of these films. In some cases, that really did happen, at least until the Edison company got wise to what was going on. That means that the smartest developers also built their own cameras, And that was not that hard, as the projectors were primarily inverted cameras, and vice versa. Some of the testings were to deal with mechanical issues. That's when Armat and Jenkins discovered how much trouble they had with their intermittent device. And later, that's how Dixon and his friends discovered how noisy their biograph projector would be. For others, things ran surprisingly smoothly. For example, while the Lumieres continued to tweak their prototype, from the beginning it was their movies and not their projector that was the focus of their early shows. They also seemed to be rather indifferent to making more movies, so the body of work they developed grew slowly. The Lumieres' first showing was in March of 1895 in Paris. It's generally considered the first showing of a movie, although it was not actually public. At that time, Edison was still refusing to make a projector and instead was betting on a new model of the kinetoscope. this time with sound. It would prove to be a flop. The future Edison projector would be developed by Thomas Armat and Charles Jenkins, but in March of 1895, those two had only agreed to study how to improve Jenkins' first projector prototype. At around the same time, Max Skladnowski was working on his machine, but it wasn't yet ready, and Robert Paul had not yet begun to work on his. Dixon was still officially working for Edison, but his friends were starting to work on a photocard version of the kinetoscope, which would be called the mutoscope. Finally, the Lathams, who were slightly ahead of the mutoscope group, we're attempting to pick Dixon's brain for some ideas about their projector, but it wouldn't be ready for some time. So in this discussion over who projected first, this first Lumiere showing is technically considered by some to be the first major demonstration of a projector, while others just see it as a private showing and maybe even something accidental. After all, the exhibition of the workers leaving the Lumiere factory was a kind of an afterthought that the brothers casually inserted into a conference on the development of photographic materials. The audience's enthusiastic response to the projected film clip surprised them. This showing was followed by a few others. As manufacturers and distributors of photographic equipment, They were members of organizations that dealt with these two aspects of their own business, and occasionally they held meetings. When one of these groups arrived for a regional meeting in suburban Lyon, the brothers not only presented the films they had made, they included a new one. It had just been made, and it showed the group's members arriving for the meeting by boat. This kind of novelty became a kind of a calling card of the Lumières. They arrived at these meetings just early enough so that Louis could set up his camera and take a short film of the group arriving, either by boat or train. Because the cinematograph was capable of printing its own films, it would print out the film prior to the meeting and give an exhibition at some point during the day. That time the attendees could see themselves on the screen. They understood before anyone else that nothing was quite as satisfying as a businessman seeing himself up on the big screen, moving and smiling. In the coming years, this would prove to be a good way for traveling cameramen to introduce moving images into a town. Between the summer of 1894 and the end of that year, the brothers decided to promote the machine and put it on the market. It's hard to know exactly what the brothers were thinking. Still, we can make a few guesses. At one time, I worked for a company that had similar managerial structure to the Lumieres. The father had started a business that would, over the years, really struggle. Still, his sons admired him for what he had accomplished, and when they were old enough, they took over the struggling company. Their choice in altering the company's direction made it very successful, and their father, as did Antoine Lumiere, appeared at the company more as a figurehead rather than as a manager or owner. He was also able to leave whenever he wanted to, and took a number of vacations in his old age. The idea of Lumiere Cinema was Pere Antoine's idea. Both Auguste and Louis admired their father and listened to his suggestions about moving pictures and film, although it doesn't seem to be something they completely understood, at least on a psychological level. That's probably why their first exhibitions were so casual and even indifferent. Although they loved their father and he did start the company, it was Auguste and Louis who had rescued it. Did they see the strip-of-moving-image film that Antoine gave them after visiting Paris as simply another one of their father's attempts to stay relevant in a business he no longer ran? After all, his suggestion of entering the movie supply market was not unlike Dixon's repeated attempts to encourage Edison to make a projector. Interestingly, both brothers claimed they had not seen the kinetoscope at the time that they had devised their camera. This, too, may imply that the brothers were more interested in just helping their father rather than pursuing moving images as some important scientific idea. Once they made their money from it, they could quickly drop the project. Neither one of them seemed to be truly interested in making movies or pushing their company into an industry that had not even been created. Auguste had no interest in filming moving pictures at all. Louis did all the camera work, as he had been a photographer, at least as a hobby, but he preferred to work in the lab. Again, as in so many ways, they were like Edison. Their disinterest in taking pictures shows their disinterest in the process itself. Either you like to take pictures, especially moving ones, or you don't. But if you do, you become curious about the camera and the media, be it film or a photo chip. You may become interested in lighting and posing people and even learning how to tell stories with the camera. At this point, the only inventor who had even a little interest in this was Robert Paul in England, and it wasn't enough to turn the process into an art form. It took close to six months for the Lumieres to move from the surprised reactions of their camera colleagues to presenting a public showing of their film clips. Now. When Dixon was in this position, he worked hard to gather a number of vaudeville artists to film. The Lumieres did little of that. Over the course of a year, Louis managed to film around 10 film clips, although he claimed later that the number was around 50. Most of the movies were filmed outside. Even the blacksmiths suggested that it was filmed with sunlight shining in. This probably had a lot to do with the inability of the film or the camera to record indoor lighting. Only fishing for goldfish, la peche en poisson rouge, looks like it was photographed indoors, and that may have been due to a set of indoor lights created by a friend. The Lumière's slow reaction to marketing their camera was probably due to arranging materials and processes for the manufacturing of the camera as the machines were to be assembled at Jules Carpentier's factory. At the same time, Antoine kept pestering them about it. Antoine seems to have had an apartment or residence in Paris. According to one source, it was above the Robert Houdin Theater. This was a magician's theater once owned by the famous French magician Robert Houdin. If this is true this connection would have very important implications for the history of early film, as the man who then owned and managed the building was magician Georges Méliès. It also seems to have been Antoine who pushed for a public viewing of the movie films. It's not known whether he arranged the dates or whether it was considered by the brothers to be a good time to show the films, but on December 28, 1895, the lumières exhibited 10 film clips in a lower level room in paris in 1895 christmas fell on a wednesday and st stephen's day followed on thursday st stephen's is an official holiday in a few parts of france and may have been enjoyed as a day off by others this left friday and saturday Who knows how this particular Christmas season was celebrated by the Lumière family, but that weekend, Louis and his father were both in Paris. Antoine had arranged for the use of the basement space underneath the Grand Café restaurant. The restaurant was located on the Boulevard du Capachin near the Paris Opera House and just north of the Tuileries and the Louvre. In the basement was a business known as the Salon Indian, or the Indian Salon. Most brief impressions of the salon suggest that it was set up nicely and was run as either a tasteful business or gathering place. It was in the basement of a nice restaurant, and the basement seems to have been used for lower-level businesses rather than simply as a storage facility for boxes, plates, cups, silverware, and tablecloths. The historical impression is that the salon was nicely furnished with wooden folding chairs and possibly decorated with curtains. Supposedly, the camera was propped up upon a stepladder, but as the machine actually required a second device to provide illumination, whether it was a Lumiere-made illuminating box or some jerry-rigged lighting device that a person built for himself, it's a little hard to see how a stepladder could have held all that. The screen was a simple sheet, and the projector was placed kind of forward in the way that teachers used to set up projectors for classroom films. Apparently, Antoine was responsible for filling the seats. Among the friends he invited was Georges Méliès. Georges had met Antoine through their mutual friend, Felicien Trevet, whom I'll talk about shortly. At the time that Antoine Lumière and Georges Méliès met, they discuss the kinetoscope. That's according to Trevet, although much of what Trevet says of his past has to be taken with a grain of salt. It's said that Antoine had a number of friends who were magicians, but more than likely they were just friends of Felician. It's really not known how many people appeared for the December 28th exhibition at the Grand Café. It's not even known if Felician Trevet appeared that night, although he was becoming acquainted with the machine. There was seating for around 30 people, and among the other names that have been mentioned as possible attendees were Leon Gaumont and his secretary, Alice Guy. Gaumont would end up running one of France's pioneering film companies and Miss Guy would become the first woman to head a film studio in America. According to Miss Guy Blachet, She and Monsieur Gaumont had attended the Paris Conference of the Society for the Encouragement of National Industry back in March of 1895, and were both impressed by the cinematograph's moving images. So their reappearance may have been both a follow-up visit and also encouraged by Antoine. Another noted visitor was the manager of the Follies Berger, whose name I don't know. It would be just a few days later that Max Skladanowski and his brothers were to appear at the Follies with his bioscope. After seeing the cinematograph work, the manager had one of his employees take the Skladnowskis to a performance at the Salon Indian the next day. Everyone agreed that the Lumiere cinematograph was a big improvement over the bioscope. The Skladnowski brothers were paid off and their contract canceled. The Follies-Bergère offered Antoine 50,000 francs for the camera, but he turned them down. These incidents suggest that it's possible that other Parisian businessmen and women who either had attended the March conference or were acquaintances of Antoine's also showed up. The Lumière films were shown in a little less than a half an hour. This included Auguste and his family eating lunch outside, and a moving picture that included Antoine and his friends, who were trevet and Louis's father-in-law, a man named Winkler, who was a brewer in Lyon. There was also a few images from their visit to Antoine's vineyards in La Cietat. This would include a visit to the Mediterranean to film the people on the beach, and a clip of a train as it arrived, possibly carrying family members. Louis would later identify the young girl as his oldest daughter and a woman in a scotch cape as his mother. This last one is known as the arrival of the train in La Ciotat, and has become a cinematic legend. Supposedly, some members of the Grand Café audience reacted in fear as the train approached upon the screen. Supposedly, they jumped up and fled the theater in a panic. This cute story wouldn't have mattered much except it became what film historian Martin Leuperdinger called cinema's founding myth. It was a story that just about every film historian for a few decades had to repeat just because it was too good to be untrue. Nothing proved the magic of the movies more than that story. But Leuperdinger did a good amount of Parisian research and couldn't find any reports by the police or articles in the newspapers from that time that mentioned people panicking or creating a riot of fear. And it's true. Going through old newspaper reports of the London premiere of the Cinematograph, I could find no mention of panicking or screaming or people fleeing the theaters. Even articles from American cities that mention the film only say that the audience is applauded. I even found a report written by Russian playwright Antoine Chekhov when he attended a cinematograph premiere in St. Petersburg. While he did his best to pioneer film criticism, no panicking was reported. It's debatable how this famous rumor started. Leuperdinger believes it started quite early, possibly around the time that the film was out. Very soon after, there was reported reactions to Edison's Black Diamond Express film clip, and this motivated a later film. Around five years later, when British filmmaker Robert Paul made a film titled A Countryman's First Sight of Animated Pictures, the whole nonsense about reactions to early train films was finally put into a movie for all to see. It's a silly short about a British farmer who jumps out of his chair and reacts to films as if they were real. When an image of a train comes barreling down on him, he jumps up and runs out. Like many of the popular films of that time, other film companies imitated it, especially the Edison Company, which made the similar Uncle Josh at the picture show, and highlighted the film by placing a film within it. In other words, a film within the film. In order to cause Uncle Josh to jump up in a panic, the Edison movie Black Diamond Express was shown on the screen. The Grand Café experiment was a big success. While a small number of the business connections that appeared at the show helped push both the Lumiere business and French cinema forward, the real proof was in the financial pudding. While it may seem as if the exhibition was only a one-night affair, it was actually an open-ended booking. The 25-minute show would be played twice an hour for what was probably five or six days a week for many weeks. The crowds grew quickly. On the first night, the brothers took in what amounted to 200 francs, but the daily turnout soon produced 1,000 francs a day. Seating was expanded, allowing 180 seated customers to see the film clips, with over 40 or so standing behind them. That produced 5,000 francs a day. The Lumieres had a gold mine, but they still didn't know what to do with it. None of them were interested in running an entertainment novelty, so in order to sell the machines and make money, they started hiring salesmen to peddle Lumiere products around the world. The first person to take up the cause of exhibiting and selling Lumière projectors was Felicien Trevet himself. Felicien's father and grandfather were devoted French Republicans, meaning that they supported the democratic tendencies of the French Revolution despite its slipping into disorganized and violent chaos such as the Reign of Terror. This made them outlaws in the eyes of various monarchies and empires that developed throughout the 19th century. Felicien grew up on the run. Although he did spend time in Marseille and in neighboring Montau, where the family settled for a time, he grew up with a love of performance, including acting in theater, walking the tightrope in circuses, and juggling and performing magic tricks. In his late teens, he worked a number of trade jobs, from truck driving, which required horses then, to selling lemonade. But his heart led him to performance work. He toured with a troupe until he had enough of a reputation to break out on his own. With that, he formed his own performance troupe, where he did magic, juggling, and what was known as shaping, which is using fabric to make various kinds of hats on stage. This was an era when everyone wore a hat of one kind or another. If this seems odd, keep in mind that there was a time when Robin Williams used to create characters on stage using fabric or random objects. That's what Felicien Treve was doing. There's even an early film clip showing him of doing just that. He was also a master of creating shadows using his hands and stray objects a kind of magical jack-of-all-trades. Felician's star slowly rose through his hard work until he was one of the major variety stars in France. Eventually, he became based in Paris but felt like an outsider in the city. This gave him the opportunity to repeatedly travel the country while performing. He toured Europe, Russia, and even America. With his reputation, he met world leaders, and the French even named recipes after him. Felicien Treve met Antoine Lumière at the casino in Lyon. At that time, both men were what you could call gentlemen of leisure, as neither one worked full-time except when they wanted to. They shared many interests, such as photography. Both were Freemasons. They had an interest in the way that mechanical technique could be used to manipulate things. Both were atheists and both loved to read H.G. Wells. Both lived in the same area near the Mediterranean coast, so it was easy for Trevay to travel the 40 or so miles to visit Lumière at La Chietat. And both fell in love with moving pictures. Antoine also had an interest in magic so Trevet introduced him to Georges Méliès as well as other magicians in 1895 Trevet was appearing at the Folies-Bergère when Antoine telegraphed him about his idea concerning a moving image machine Trevet seems to have been with the Lumières during the time of the projector camera's development He appears in several films with Antoine as well as appearing in a few of his own. He does his hat performance for the camera and he fools around with some old men, including Antoine in another. A month after the Paris show started, Felicien Treve took the cinematograph over to London and introduced it to England. He first appeared at the Polytechnic in late February of 1896. At the time... The Polytechnic Building was close to 60 years old. It had once been a science building with a large exhibition area on its first floor. Known as Marlborough Hall, interesting new scientific ideas were on display there. After a tragedy which involved the collapse of the Polytechnic stairwell, the building was sold to Quintin Hogg, who had been the head of the Polytechnic. Hogg was a wealthy merchant who had established the program as a way to bring education to the public. With the buyout, he built a theater at one end of Marlborough Hall. The theater was used to demonstrate optical instruments on occasion. Magic lantern shows were held there, as well as periodic performances of live theater. The first demonstration of the cinematograph, along with the exhibition of several Lumiere film clips, only brought 54 people to the show but the crowd soon picked up. In early March, a second show was set up at the Empire Theatre. Both theatres were running the shows every half hour from 2 in the afternoon to 10 at night. At Treves' first showing at the Empire, the applause was so great that he had to come out on the stage and take a bow. One of the London papers did complain that he needed to rotate his material more frequently. Unfortunately, between his two nightly schedules, the traveling he did between them and the rest of his schedule, it was difficult for him to do so. Recording local events and playing on the stage was to be part of the job, and he did make a few films highlighting the theaters and traffic on the streets around them, but it was all quite demanding. The Era, a London newspaper of the time, said: The cinematograph is sure to be the talk of the town. Monday's audience applauded it lustily, and so enthusiastically did they become that the two of the living and moving pictures were reproduced, and he mentions both films concerned the train arriving at La Ciotat, and another called The Bathers, which was several people on the Mediterranean beach near the vineyards. The writer also mentioned the Lumiere factory film clip, as well as Auguste and his family having lunch, which was now called Tea Time. Antoine's Card Game, one of Trevet's magic films, and The Gardener being sprayed with a hose. At the same time, Robert Paul was starting his shows. His first one happened to coincide with Trevet's first showing, and he too would be running between music halls over the spring months, as he attempted to show his films in as many places as he could in a single day. So in March of 1896, London and Paris were in the throes of projector fever, which was proving to be much more exciting than the kinetoscope. Back in Lyon, the Lumieres were making plans to spread their cinematograph and its film making capabilities all over the world. In New York, things were still quiet, but that would soon change as the first projector would soon arrive on Broadway. It wouldn't be the Lumieres, but the man responsible had to buy it and slap his name on it in order to be ahead of the French brothers. Next episode will be about Robert Paul's shows in London. And after that, it will be time for us to go back to New York. First to visit vaudeville, and then next to see-